electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod. One of our favorite conversations this year with philanthropist and author Melinda Gates. How the school drop-off changed her marriage and maybe her life. If Bill Gates can do it, <laughs> you can do it. And now she's a driving force behind the world's largest philanthropic organization, Gates has written a candid memoir on empowerment, both for herself and for women around the world. I feel like equality can't wait. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Wednesday, December 25th, 2019. Squawk Pod today, Becky Quick's candid conversation with Melinda Gates on the moment of lift. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Melinda Gates is a philanthropist, businesswoman, and advocate for women and girls. In 2019, she added best-selling author to that resume with a memoir on her life and work. A huge part of that work is with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The massive philanthropy started with her husband, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, who was the richest man in the world for the better part of two decades and is still worth north of $95 billion. The foundation works to improve global health and focuses on the developing world, where the Gateses have seen firsthand what greater gender equality can do to local communities and economies. Getting more of that gender equality is what Melinda calls her moment of lift. Here's Becky Quick. Melinda's an amazing person. People know who she is because she's married to Bill Gates. She's one of the co-heads of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She's a well-known philanthropist. But what's amazing about this story is just how much of herself she puts into it, how willing she is to expose who she is and some of her innermost thoughts. It lets us all realize that she's human too. I mean she's, she's an amazing person. If you don't know her history, uh, she worked at Microsoft because she was a computer scientist back when women weren't computer scientists. She got involved in that very early. Uh, She's a computer scientist who worked at Microsoft and that's where she met Bill. But uh, she's such an interesting person and this book really gets into that. What struck me a lot is her story is actually very accessible and universal even though Mm -hmm. she's married to one of the wealthiest men in the world. She talks a lot about family balance. She talks a lot about raising kids who have uh, responsibility and sensitivity to the rest of the world. And she also talks about just how they even managed their daily schedules, which I thought was fascinating. Me too. I I think you and I both had the same favorite story in this book, where she talks about when she sat down with Bill 
and explained to him that he was going to have to do some of the heavy lifting with the kids too, that it wouldn't be all her, that he needed to be involved. I think lots of us have had uh, conversations like this with our significant others where you're expecting them to pick up right. some of it, but you think about Bill Gates being the richest man in the world, having that conversation with him, maybe it'd go a little differently. It did not. She makes a big <laughs> point of talking about how she told Bill he was going to start taking the kids to school at times, that he would be waiting in the carpool lines too. And the funniest part of it is the, the feedback she got from other moms saying, hey, if Bill Gates can drive his kids to school, you guys can too. So it's empowerment right. and equalization. And uh, yeah, I love it. I love that they're having conversations like this at home. She talks so much about her personal experiences and finding her own sense of personal empowerment. And that really extended to the work that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does around the world mm -hmm. and also the really personal work that she does with women in the developing world right. in communities that need financial support, that need health care support, um, that need entrepreneurial support, that need all kinds of things. You know, you, you think of being a billionaire and kind of sitting in this ivory tower and writing checks to these things. And that, that would be amazing enough if that's what they were doing. But what Melinda describes in this is how she really gets into every effort. She has traveled to Africa, to India, countries all around the world and not just gone to the very fancy places there. She goes and she meets with the people on the ground that their gifts are supposed to help so that she can understand their problems better. You know, even living um, in, in, in a hut somewhere with her daughter for a while and seeing what it's like on an everyday basis where you can right. sit down and realize, okay, you've got to get the water. We have to figure out how we're going to eat. We're going to have to figure out how to do a fire. That's how she's able to understand their problems is kind of putting herself in their shoes literally. Becky spoke to Melinda Gates in April on Squawk Box. Here's that interview. And Melinda, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Becky. Um, you know, your book is an amazing read. What I wonder is how long you've been thinking about writing this and, and what got you to actually do it? Yeah, I've been thinking about writing it probably for the last three or four years. And I finally decided about a year ago I wanted to start writing it because I feel like equality can't wait. And we have this moment in time between the Me Too movement, the number of women who are running for Congress and have gotten in, and yet even with that rate of women running for Congress and the progress we're all excited about, if we still continue at this rate, it's going to be 60 years till we have true equality in Congress. And so I want to make sure we use this moment in time and really make sure we get equality in society. You know, the reason your book is so powerful is because you use really real people's stories. Mm. Uh, these are women you've met in your travels around the globe in developing nations. But it's also your story, too. There's a lot of this that is autobiographical. Mm. Um, you're a really private person. I am. How did you decide to put that in? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, some of the pieces in the book, I'm incredibly vulnerable, and I think those were the hardest pieces to write. But I felt like um, I wanted to share my stories because I want people to understand who I am, and I think my story is also the story of millions of women. So, um, And I wanted to share these voices of the women I've heard from around the world because I learn from them. It's, and so if by sharing their stories, they've called me to action, if my story and their stories can call others to action, then it was worth being more vulnerable in there. Did you do a lot of soul searching before you actually put a lot of yourself into this? Absolutely. And um, I, the hardest pieces for me to write were the most private parts of the book. Um, moments in our marriage where I was asking Bill for more equality um, or moments where I do talk about abuse that I went through. That was the hardest piece to write. But I felt like in being vulnerable, if I would share those stories, people would understand 
you know, abuse, it can happen to absolutely anyone. And I travel the globe, and when I stay long enough in places, it comes out, whether I'm in Silicon Valley, whether I'm in northern India, whether I'm in Senegal or Malawi, women talk to you about abuse. And one of the reasons it's important to write about that is because it silences women. It silenced my voice. It took away my self-confidence for years. And I wanted to know for women that we have to share our stories, and it's in that sharing that we can actually change society. You know, you do write pretty honestly about your marriage when you had to take times in your marriage where you were really looking for equality, Mm -hmm. equality at the foundation, equality in terms of who does what at home and with the kids. What did Bill think about all that? Yeah, well, luckily, Bill grew up in a family where his mom was working early when a lot of women weren't. His grandmother actually went to college and played basketball when a lot of people of that generation, women didn't do that. So he wanted it in theory. But I don't think either of us, when we entered the marriage, really questioned either one of us what our roles would be. And clearly, he's running Microsoft. I mean, he has a huge job. But I think even what I expected of myself, we didn't stop and talk about it. So it wasn't until well into the marriage that I realized how much I was doing at home and that I had to name for him, hey, I want to work too. I enjoy working. And if I'm going to be able to do that, you need to take on more work at home. What was his first reaction to that? Well, um, I'm not always elegant in how I bring these things up. He might tell you that sometimes I have my hands on my hips. Um, But I have to say, one of the things I write about in the book is when our oldest daughter, Jen, was beginning kindergarten. We both agreed on the school we wanted her to go to, but it was a good 45 minutes round trip drive from our house. And I said to Bill, okay, look, we both agree on this, but I can see years ahead in traffic twice a day. I said, how about we wait till she's in third grade? We'll put her closer to home. And he said, no, I think this is really important. And I said, but it's so much time in the car for me. And he said, well, how about, he offered, how about if I drive two days a week? And for him, it meant an hour round trip to the school because Microsoft was further away from the school than our home was. And the interesting thing that happened is when he started doing this, about three weeks into the school year, another mother sidled up to me and she said, do you see what's going on here? And I said, well, I've noticed more dads are dropping their kids at school coming into the classroom. And she said, yeah, we went home and told our husbands, if Bill Gates can do it, you can do it. And so what we didn't even realize is we, by having this conversation at home and changing things, we were role modeling for other families in the classroom. One of your big focuses at the foundation and something you write a lot about in this book is making sure that um, reproductive rights Mm. are something that you think is very important and vocalizing that and doing something about it. That wasn't an easy decision for you either because you're Catholic, you grew up in a Catholic household, you went to a Catholic all-girls school, and that draws some fire. Mm -hmm. How, How did you reach this decision? Why did you think it's so important? I was traveling for the foundation. I've had the great privilege of traveling all over the world for 20 years. I'm out in places, low-income countries, at least three times a year, talking with families and women. And it wasn't the conversation I was asking about. I'd often be asking about vaccines for their children, which they will tell you are life-saving. But they kept bringing up contraceptives, and they kept saying, why don't I have them? I used to have them. They're no longer at that health clinic. And they would literally say to me, this is a life and death crisis. Like, I can't have another child. I can barely feed the ones I have. And I realized that as a world, we had backed away from it because of religious, particularly the Catholic Church, and political reasons. And yet, if I really was listening in the developing world 
and then looking at the data and realizing no country in the world in the last 50 years has escaped poverty without making sure women have access, voluntary access to contraceptives. I thought, okay, if we really are for low-income countries becoming middle-income and high-income, we have to make sure as a world women have access to contraceptives. And you're talking about family planning, making Mm -hmm. sure that you can space your kids out over time, making sure that you can hopefully feed the number of children that you have and give each of them opportunities along the way too. Absolutely. Planning and spacing the births of your children. And we know, I think we take for granted in the United States, I mean, what allowed women to go into the workforce in droves? It was the advent of the pill. And when women can choose to time and space the births of their babies, we know from great research, one of the biggest longitudinal studies in global health, that families are healthier, children are better educated, and families are wealthier if the woman can time and space the births of her children. You know, you started out just a moment ago talking about vaccinations and how you would talk to women about vaccinating their children. You've seen huge advances as diseases that used to be terrifying have kind of gotten eradicated or almost eradicated in some cases. Do you get frustrated when you see the anti-vax movement in this country and the return of things like measles and mumps that should be preventable? I get very frustrated because the women I talk to in country after country, let's say in Africa, they will say, I walked 10 kilometers in the heat to get here. You know, they've got a baby on their back and they've got another couple with them and they're saying, of course I want a vaccine. Like when I go and ask them about vaccines, they're like, well, of course I want it. It's saving my child's life. So the fact that the U.S., we have forgotten what some of these diseases are like and that they not only affect our own children, but they affect other people's children or other people whose immune system is down, that's that's not right. You need to vaccinate your children. It saves lives. Yeah, we're getting stupider, not smarter on this front. We're believing things that aren't true. And I think we're not reading the right information or talking to our pediatrician. He or she knows that vaccines save lives. Melinda, the the focus on family planning. Um, You do write in the book also about how you're a little frustrated that here in this administration, it's not a a priority. That uh, for teen pregnancy to be talking about or focusing on any of these issues. Have you spoken with anyone in the Trump administration about these things? I have. And again, I feel like that's my role. I have to speak truth in these situations. And I am incredibly frustrated and disappointed to see that systematically um, access to contraceptives being rolled back in this country. And the people that it has the most effect for are single moms living in not great circumstances in low-income neighborhoods. And I've again, I've met with those moms in and around Georgia or in and around Tennessee, and they will tell you, again, like every woman, they want to be able to time and space the births of their children. And if we don't allow access to these tools at low cost, they can't afford them. And so they're making these trade-offs in their families. And we are literally locking women into a cycle of poverty if we don't allow them access to contraceptives. Reading the stories in your book, one one thing that struck me of all the women you've met in these developing nations is how far so many of these countries have come in terms of progress, how big of an impact it's had on the lives of so many people around the globe. Here in this country, we focus a lot on what's wrong with capitalism right Mm. now. What's what's gone astray? Why are middle-income wages stagnating? When I read these stories, I think, my gosh, we have so little to complain about based on what we see around the world and how fortunate we all are. And I think part of the reason 
that we've seen middle income wages stagnate here is because of globalization. Mm. That's helped other countries. That's brought others along. How do you come down on the globalization argument as you've seen the progress mm. that this has kind of kicked in? What I know to be true is I would far rather live in a capitalistic society than a socialist society. Absolutely. And I think when we stop and think of what we have from a capitalistic society, we have to remember what we actually have. Now, is it a perfect system? Absolutely not. We need government to do its job, to regulate things, to have an appropriate tax system. Um, as our co-trustee Warren Buffett says, capitalism does have gaps in it. And so we need to look at those gaps in society and figure out what do we do to fill them so that everybody has the chance to live a healthy and productive life. And so I also know that the American people are compassionate people. And I think we all do better as a globe when countries can grow from low to middle income to high income. And so I think we need to look at our system and say, okay, what are the great things about it? And what are the things that at this point in time we need to adjust and change? I would far rather us have that conversation than, hey, let's take our system and dismantle it. Um, when I go to places like Malawi or Tanzania or Senegal, they say they all want to live in America. We are lucky to live here. They want to live in these types of capitalistic societies. And um, we just need to tune it and get it right. Uh, pivotal Ventures. Yeah. I didn't realize everything you've done with that or how you've reached into it. Uh, you looked around at venture capital funding and realized so little of it was going to women, I think 2% in 2017, and a much smaller portion if you look at women of color. Mm. Um, you figure that there are plenty of other good ideas out there. They're just not getting funding. So explain what happened with Pivotal, what you're doing. Sure. So the foundation is where my enormous focus is for women and people all over the world, trying to make sure that people have equal opportunity. I feel, though, that there are gaps in the United States for women and people of color. And so I created this personal office called Pivotal to work on those issues in the United States. And I look at what are the systematic things in the United States through Pivotal that I can work on that hold women back. One of them I'm incredibly passionate about, probably not surprising, I'm a computer scientist, is women in tech. But I'm passionate about it because... Tech is pervasive in society. If you see, you know, who imagined, when I was working at Microsoft, I didn't imagine, we didn't imagine a phone in our pockets with that computing power, and yet what it allows us to do. And so, to me, when I think about women, I want to make sure that they have an equal seat at the table at creating products, making decisions. And when I see only 2% of venture capital funding goes to women, less than 1% goes to people of color, now, I know lots of women and people of color that have great business ideas, and yet there's something, there's a systematic bias in venture capitalism that keeps their great ideas from being funded and coming forward, and that shouldn't be. So I'm not only speaking about it, I'm actually putting money down, investments down that I expect a good return on to make sure those ideas come forward and get funded. You mentioned you're a computer scientist, and when you were going through and getting your degree, getting your MBA, Working at Microsoft, you were one of, if not the only, woman in your class in each of those situations. Um, since then, though, the numbers have not improved. They've actually gotten worse in some situations. Why? What do we do? Yeah, so the time I was in college, late 1980s, uh, the number of computer science graduates was in the basically high 30%. And we thought we were on the way up, like medicine and like law, which about have parity now for women and men. 
But in fact, computer science took a precipitous drop, and we're now at about 19% of computer science graduates are women. And nobody knows the exact answer. This is another thing about society. We don't actually collect data about women. But we believe that it has to do with when the gaming came into the computer industry. It was, first of all, it was promoted to boys, and all the games that were created were shoot 'em up games and things that boys liked. And girls don't tend to like those games as much. And so it became this self-fulfilling prophecy that more boys liked it and went into it. And so women today don't see the easy pathways into computer science. And yet, there are things we can do. So what I'm seeing, the colleges that are attracting lots of women in computer science, even if they don't come to, to college to study computer science, they're putting that first CS course out there. And instead of having these theoretical math problems, they have real world problems that women say, I want to solve that. I want to figure that out. And they have more female role models saying to women, you can do this. When we start to do that, women not only start in computer science, they persist and stay. And these are fabulous jobs in society, which is why I want to make sure women know that and have these different pathways in. Melinda, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Uh, the book, again, is called The Moment of Lift, and we really appreciate it. Thanks, Becky. Thank you. I could have talked to you for another half thank hour. Thank you. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. We're back. That's Squawk Pod for this Christmas Day. Thank you for spending time with us. On television, every morning, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Check it out starting at 6 a.m. Eastern on CNBC. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, and Cameron Costa and Waverly Colville. Edward Fetner edited this episode. Have a wonderful holiday, and we will meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.